This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. People, especially Americans, are by and large optimists, almost blind optimists. This is true not just of their approach to imagining the future, but of their memories as well. In her new book, Never Saw It Coming, Cultural Challenges to Envisioning the Worst, our guest today, Karen Cerullo, considers the role of society in fostering this attitude. What kind of groups and communities develop this pattern of thought, which do not, and what this says about human ability to evaluate possible outcomes of decisions and events. Cerullo is a professor of sociology at Rutgers University. She's also the author of the award-winning Identity Designs, The Sights and Sounds of a Nation. Karen Cerullo, welcome to Weekly Signals. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm doing just fine. And yourself? I'm, I think I'm doing okay. I haven't yet, you know, it's, it's what is it, 8.30 out here in California? Yeah. I don't usually kick in until about 9.30. Karen, where are you at? <laughs> where, what part of the country are you in? I'm in New Jersey, so we're well on our way on the day here. It's yeah. about 11.35 here. Yeah. Is there global warming there yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it may be on its way. <laughs> okay. So, so tell, tell me, give me a definition of, of, uh, of uh, blind optimism. You know, I think a definition of blind optimism is a kind of lopsided or maybe an asymmetrical way of seeing the world. It results in a kind of tunnel vision that directs us to best-case scenarios and at the same time has us disregarding worst-case scenarios. Do you think that we're uh, peaking on blind optimism right now as a country? You know, I think that it is the norm as opposed to Mm -hmm. the exception to the rule. I think it is true especially among Americans, but it's also true in many other cultures. And I think it has historical roots as well. So I don't think this is something new. I think this has mm. been a phenomenon that's been going on for a very long time, and it's been going on in a lot of different places. What would be the historical roots of it in, in say, this country? Well, uh, what we see is that there has been a real propensity to think about best-case scenarios, to be optimistic, even in the face of disasters. And that kind of perspective weaves its way into our personal lives when we're thinking about our families or our work settings or our relationships. Uh, It weaves its way into our planning for the future when we're thinking about what to do in terms of getting old or um, how to plot out careers. Uh, And it's true at sort of large scales when we think about how nations plan foreign policies, how they protect themselves against potential attacks, how they enter countries in terms of uh, declaring war and so forth. Now, there's got to be a line, though, between, say, a blind optimism and just plain optimism. Uh, you know, if, if I'm in a, uh, a football game and, and the other team weighs 300 pounds more than I do per man, and I think that I'm going to run on them, maybe, that might be blind optimism. But, but, if, but if we're evenly matched, and, and uh, I think we're going to... Prevail. Yeah, prevail. That's just good old-fashioned optimism. So, so, you know, what is the difference when the odds are, th- does it have to reach a certain point, do you think, in blind optimism? Uh, I think you have to be 
dealing with a situation in which somehow you seem incapable of articulating a worst-case scenario uh-huh. or incapable of assuming it might happen to you. Um, you know, uh, I've been looking a, a lot at um, polls about parenting, polls about love and marriage and so forth, and I'm utterly amazed at the fact that among parents, for example, parents have a very good idea of bad things that can happen to children. But when it comes to their own children, you look at percentages that are up around 75, 85%, uh, with parents believing that none of those things will ever happen to their children. Mm. Um, When you look at the way we plan for our futures with partners and spouses and so forth, we live in a country in the United States where about one in every two marriages may end in divorce. And yet when you talk to people about their relationships, You see amazing figures, 75, 85% of people saying they're happy in their marriage, they expect to die married to the same person they married the first time around. Um, And that's why, indeed, so few people consider things like prenups. uh, And it's uh, our our kind of blind optimism, even about things like life and death, helps to explain why so few people do things like prepare advanced directives or prepare wills. Even in the face of death somehow, which we know is going to happen, there's some sense that maybe it's not going to happen to us. Yeah. Well, there's a, doesn't blind optimism really goes kind of hand in hand with, uh, with nationalism, doesn't it? I mean, there's a sense when, uh, and I'll go back to Ronald Reagan, the sort of shining city on the hill and all things are a new, new morning in America. That, that's, I, I realize there's, there is an optimism there, which is appropriate. But the nationalists, forget the Reagan example, just nationalism in general really lends itself to a blind optimism, doesn't it? Well, I think it does. You know, I don't want to imply in any way that being optimistic is a bad thing. Right. When you look at whether it's at, you know, the interpersonal level or at the international level, um, where would people be if, you know, after the death of a spouse or a child they couldn't somehow muster some kind of optimism or try to read something positive into that or you know where would we be as a nation if we couldn't somehow get back to a sense of normal daily living after the 9-11 attacks or Mm -hmm. if we couldn't have gained trust in the economy after uh... the stock crashes of 1929 optimism is a very good thing and that's why um, this is a, such a difficult problem, because I certainly would never advocate a destruction of optimism. But what I would advocate, especially in certain settings, is an attempt to just open the blinders that we wear a little bit more and consider some worst-case options so that we might develop a more balanced sense of vision, especially in situations where we're talking about uh, international policy, um, and when we're talking about protection of people that we love and care about. We're speaking with Karen Cirillo, and the book is Never Saw It Coming, Cultural Challenges to Envisioning the Worst. What do you think uh, makes Americans so uh, blindly optimistic? Or are we? Let me ask. Are we blindly optimistic, generally speaking? Do you think of us as that? Uh, I think that we, we tend to uh, be more blindly optimistic than uh, most Places and um, but it's certainly not an ideal uh, or excuse me certainly not a uniquely American problem. Why why are we? Well, you know, part of part of the whole um, problem of blind optimism is that this kind of perspective is really entrenched in cultures, and 
all of us learn a whole arsenal of practices that help divert our attentions from worst cases and really focus us almost exclusively on best cases. Um, You know, you think, for example, um, of very formal mechanisms, and I'm thinking here of things like banishing the people and objects that are thought to be the worst among us. I'm thinking of things like physical seclusion and shunning. Uh, in Historically, in societies, and certainly even currently, very often we would rather push those things out of sight than to have them take any of our attention at all. And so we physically seclude people who we feel are the worst examples of criminal minds, or we physically seclude people who might remind us of problems with poverty or mental illness. We kind of sweep it away so we don't have to see it, and it allows us to focus on many, many more positive things that are going on uh, around us. Um, You know, we also have maybe more informal practices that support this idea. Um, How many times have we heard the phrase, make lemons out of lemonade, Mm -hmm. or look for a cloud's silver lining. Um, We have been taught to take very negative, worst cases in our lives and somehow recast them or redefine them as if they are good things. Um, You know, it's interesting to talk to someone, for example, who perhaps has cancer or suffers from some sort of a debilitating problem, say like migraine headaches. And how often do we hear people say, this is really a blessing. Mm. Uh, you know, we have been taught to somehow take things that we know are very negative, or maybe the worst things we ever wanted to uh, have happen to us, and to recast them as if they are opportunities. Well, isn't, isn't that basically a coping mechanism? Isn't that one, one of the ways that we, that's how we describe that, that reaction? Uh, I think in many ways it's a coping mechanism, but I think it's, it's even more broad than that. Okay. It's something that is institutionalized in our culture, and it's something that we learn. Um, from the minute we become social and cultural beings, we learn how to do it. We learn what things we need to sweep away, what things we need not to look at, and what things we really need to focus on. That's why I think in our cultures, for example, We are so good at over-articulating the best. We have awards to highlight just about the best of everything Mm -hmm. you can think of, from, you know, websites to bottles of wine to uh, one-line jokes. Uh, I mean, there's there's no end to our highlighting the best of things in so many arenas. But the worst, um, we really find it very difficult to even articulate what it is because we have become so adept at not even trying to envision it. And, I, and the value of articulating the worst is to be ready and prepared to try to either mitigate it or, or to avoid it, right? Isn't that one of the, that's one of the reasons why you talk about worst-case scenarios, is uh, to be yeah, prepared for I mean, it. we want to um, be able to at least have a better sense of what the potential for the worst is so that we can protect ourselves, whether we're talking about protecting our children, whether we're talking about thinking logically about preparing for old age, or whether we're talking about preparing for a terrorist attack or a natural disaster or creating an exit strategy in a war. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think we need to do at all levels of social life. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not, uh, you know, I don't mean to suggest that we have to become utter pessimists. Although there is something we can learn, I think, from people who are good at articulating worst-case scenarios and perhaps 
take a little bit of that wisdom and try to weave it into our daily lives so that we have a more balanced vision of what's in front of us. We're speaking with Karen Cerullo. The book is Never Saw It Coming, Cultural Challenges to Envisioning the Worst. Now, let's let's just go, there's one, uh, well, how do you get a memo put in front of you that says, Bin Laden determined to attack within the U.S., to attack within the U.S., and, and not react to it in a... Uh, <laughs> negative will not be way. prepared. More yeah. of a better prepared. Uh, is is that? Do you think that that instance uh, for Condoleezza Rice was a case of just blind optimism, or was it just being plain ignorant? Uh, or, well, you know, I I would argue that it was not so much ignorance as it was blind optimism, mm-hmm. and part of the reason for that, I think. Um, you know, when I say blind optimism, I don't. Um, uh, I don't want to kind of conjure up a picture of sort of happy, happy people who are running around with big smiles on their faces right. and just seem unable to see reality. Um, I think it's a much more subtle, ingrained process for us. And what I think is true is that it's more apt to happen in certain social settings, that cer- certain social settings are organized in ways that don't allow people the luxury of thinking outside the box. And certainly when we think of the way in which most governments, for example, are organized or most large corporations and organizations where they have these kind of strict hierarchies where control kind of flows down and people who are on the ground, so to speak, and may actually be seeing um, potential risks, um, those people aren't afforded the same kind of power. Their messages as they're getting sent up the hierarchy often don't get heard. And there's a, a kind of tendency in those settings for people to just kind of carry on the status quo, business as, as usual. And as a result, their minds are not open to the potential for something different happening, like a terrorist attack. Uh, so to speak. Um, you know, one of the uh, things that I did in the book was to look at some examples of places where disasters were actually seen and averted versus cases in which they were not. And um, one of the cases in which the disaster was not seen is this all-too-familiar Phoenix memo that we heard a lot about um, in connection with the 9-11 attacks. Right. And uh, this is exactly um, the kind of strict traditional thinking that I'm talking about that in many ways was encouraged by the way most of our large agencies and organizations are organized. There is no room for free exchange of information. There is no two-way listening, so to speak. Um, There is no sense of a service orientation, and as a result, um, we tend to get these very customary, top-down decisions that often rely on institutional life and rules as opposed to maybe the reality that's standing in front of someone. Um, The cultures that I I talk about are um, two in particular that I I focus on in the book were um, medical cultures, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I also um, did some work looking at computer operators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this is, these are two areas that probably any of your listeners, if you think about the last time you've dealt with your doctor or with the tech person where you're working, um, you immediately see that these are people who are really bucking the trend in terms of blind optimism. In many ways, they're blind pessimists that 
all they're focused on is the potential worst case. You know, I think of the last time I went into my doctor's office for, for, for example, um, you know, from the minute you step in the door, um, you're being focused on worst cases. You know, you're handed a, a pile of forms where you're told to check off every disease that may ever have entered your family history or your time on earth. Um, you go in for the exam, and you know, no one in that office is asking you, well, what's been going well since the last time we saw you? They're focusing you on what's wrong, what's the problem. Um, your doctor is totally trained to look at abnormalities and not normalities. In fact, if you asked your doctor to define good health for you, he would probably be a little dumbstruck because the idea of health is not the way in which doctors are trained. They're mm-hmm. trained to focus on abnormalities and illness. And even when you leave the exam room, you know, you'll be handed an insurance form that will have 50, maybe even 100 illnesses or diagnoses, and you'll notice that there's never one on there for kind of wellness. Um, There's just no room for it in medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, part of what I've been doing in the book is suggesting that maybe we can learn something from people in these settings, people who have been trained in, in ways that are diametrically opposed to the general culture and um, perhaps weave a little bit of what they're doing into our overall perspective of the world. You, you, on, the, on the other hand, just to be a contrarian here, the criticism of a medical profession is that they concentrate on treatment rather than prevention. And, and it might suggest that if you did uh, look at just the negative aspects of things, you'd be looking at ways to overcome the negative aspects rather than preventing them. I think you're right. I think the medical community is open to that criticism that they're looking purely at treatment and not considering prevention. And so I don't mean to say that they necessarily should be lauded for not having some training in what wellness is and how to maintain it. Um, Because, again, uh, my feeling is that what we're striving for here is balance. But the reason that I think of the medical community or community uh, computer operators or you know, meteorologists or another group that I think are trained to see the worst case um, is that if we want to seek that balance, we have to gain a little bit of knowledge on how to see worst cases. And so if we go to arenas where that's all that's seen, um, we can learn something that we can bring into our blindly optimistic culture to affect some balance. And indeed, if I were talking to... Uh, a medical community, I would say you need to look a little bit at what's going on in the general culture and bring that into medicine so that you, too, can be a little bit more balanced and not be totally negative, but try to get a little bit more of, of the symmetry in the way that you see the world. We're speaking with Karen Cirillo, and the book is Never Saw It Coming, <clears throat> Cultural Challenges to Envisioning the Worst. I've got what I consider to be sort of the ultimate blind, um, blindly optimistic perspective uh, operating today, which is um, global warming. Okay, I think there's a sense that uh, there's a lot of whistling past the graveyard mentality involved in in global warming. I think there's a sense among the leadership in this country that it will fix itself. That somehow it it'll just come out okay. And to me, it seems like we are. We are blindly optimistic about the, uh, but the chances that we're going to be able to to bring this um, troubling problem under control or even fix what's going on. Is is there something that that can be done about that? You know, is there some way to convince leadership that they are being 
blindly optimistic or or those it, it seems that the scientists for the most part aren't blindly optimistic here they're 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 bringing up worst case scenarios everywhere all the time and yet our leadership seems to be not addressing it in a way that because you're you're, you're hearing these time frames you've got 10 15 20 years to turn this ship around and our and our leadership seems to not be paying attention to that. Is do you think of that as a case of, of blind optimism? I definitely do. I mean, I think you're so right in that this is a situation that uh, couldn't be more important for us right now. And somehow uh, it seems as if a lot of the warnings are falling on deaf ears. Um, part of the problem, I think, is that the people we're entrusting to solve the problem are stuck in that structure I'm describing of using formal hierarchies to solve problems. And there's something about, you know, we don't make decisions in a vacuum. The way the settings we work in and live in are organized have some effect on what we see and what we don't see and what we act on and what we don't act on. Um, There are some settings where emergencies, if you will, uh, like this, have been dealt with very effectively. And if I were advising someone on what to do about global warming, I would tell them, for example, to study the, the case of SARS or to study the case of Y2K. Mm-hmm. We, we, I think, have never really fully understood what dire emergencies these were and how effectively they were combated. And, in fact, these cases were so effectively combated that we tend to think of them as, now as if they were false alarms. The truth of the matter is they were very serious problems that were effectively dealt with because decision-making structures were built that were able to allow people the freedom of thought to think of new solutions to critical problems. Um, You know, when I think of the case of SARS, for example, uh, I think of a structure that WHO set up, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. to, to deal with this problem. Um, they were completely open in dealing with the problem. They were reaching out to people on the ground locally, setting up, if you can almost picture a spider web. This was the kind of structure that they were building, reaching out to people, listening to what people on the ground were saying to them, spreading that information around to others who were at risk, and creating this kind of open information environment that let people know what was going on, allowed them then to deal with the problem and react quickly. We didn't have a kind of God on high, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that we have in most national governments where information can be sent up, but it's not likely to be paid attention to by the powers that be. They're going to be sifting through and acting very selectively tied to their own particular policy considerations. Um, Here we had a kind of group of people calling the shots who were more interested in servicing the public than they were building their own power base. And as a result, uh, they shared information. They encouraged interaction. Um, They let people piggyback on one another's problem-solving strategies so that help got dispersed quickly. And uh, the results were... Um, very, very positive. Yeah. So we can hope now that um, Those lessons. as uh, people like Al Gore are stepping forward and trying to really heighten awareness to global warming and get a more supportive sentiment in the general public, that we may see some 
more service-oriented agencies step forward and try to take control of this problem uh, in many, in much the same way as uh, places like the WHO did in the case the of SARS. SARS and as they have in with regard to, you know, other medical problems and so forth. And similarly to the international agencies that were formed to combat uh, Y2K, was sort of taken out of the hands of individual governments and put in the hands of a more service-oriented structure. Well, very good. I would throw one other element in there, and that is our survival. And that, that's <laughs> exactly. it's the SARS representative survival of us as a species, and, and Y2K as an economic entity. Uh, we've got to wrap this up. Um, Karen Cirillo, I want to thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. The book is Never Saw It Coming, Cultural Challenges to Envisioning the Worst. Thank you for being on. It was my pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.